This is God's word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, You shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah king of Judah in Jerusalem when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed. All the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city. And they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. As far as we read in God's holy word, as we study through the book of uh, Jeremiah, we hear themes uh, continuing to be repeated. 
We enjoyed our study, didn't we, of these previous chapters, uh, chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33. We call those the Book of Consolation. It was wonderful uh, to study the promises of God. And now as we end uh, those chapters and turn back to just a regular chapter, chapter 34, we're jolted back to the problem of the imploding city of Jerusalem. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has invaded the area, and he's now systematically destroying the land of Judah on his way toward Jerusalem and the other two cities that haven't been touched yet. And again today, I remind us, we have to remember that as we study the book of Jeremiah, it's not organized chronologically according to a timeline, the way we ordinarily read the paper or read a book. You'd think it happened that way. It's instead organized intentionally by themes, topics. What is it that God wants to say to us? What is it that Jeremiah wants to present and when? So if you're wondering in terms of time stamp, I think it is important for you as we turn the page to chapter 34 to realize we are now chronologically prior to chapters 32 and 33. And the reason that's important is, you remember we've been studying for a couple of weeks how Jeremiah is in prison, but he's not in prison in our chapter. And so I didn't want you to get confused. For example, look at verse 2. This is how God could say to Jeremiah here in chapter 34, verse 2, go and speak to the king. He couldn't do that if he was in prison. So it's just an indicator to you that we are at a different time. We're at the earlier time before he was in prison. We're at the time where King Nebuchadnezzar and the army of Babylon has just now started to invade and they're um, taking over the land and the rural areas. They're working on the cities and they've got three more cities to go. One of them is Jerusalem. So that's our scene And the main point is this, compared to God's reliability, we notice our own sin of unreliability. You say it another way, compared to God's faithfulness, we notice our fickleness. And so we'll see this in three points. Facing destruction, the king promised to free the slaves. Secondly, when the enemy withdrew, the king changed his mind, took the slaves over again. And third, that God punished the king for unreliability and, by the way, mistreating others. So first, facing destruction, the king promised to free the slaves. Verse 1, here God speaks to Jeremiah. While Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking Jerusalem, it's our same old scene, right? Apart from Jerusalem, there's only two other cities who are still intact, and soon all three of those cities would be reduced to mounds of rubble. It actually feels like the whole world is against Jerusalem. And you know, when you read verse 1, it actually sounds just like this. Listen, all the kingdoms of the earth were fighting against Jerusalem. It actually is said that the whole world is against Jerusalem. It's because the God of all the earth, the God of all the nations, is against Jerusalem. He's been trying to get their attention. He's been warning them and warning them that I'm going to have you attacked and I'm going to destroy the city and I'm going to take you into exile. And the armies of the king of Babylon were merely being agents of God. It's not about some war scene and what's happening in the church in the middle of a war scene. This is about God. And what God is saying about sin and the unacceptability of the sin. And he's following through on his warnings that the city would be attacked and destroyed. So it's about to be destroyed. It's being attacked. It's where we are. It's because the God is putting pressure on the king, the king of Judah. There's pressure from Babylon, certainly. If you read verse 1 again, notice the word all. All his army, all the kingdoms, all the peoples, all of its cities. When you have something repeated, it's usually trying to emphasize something. It's pervasive. It's comprehensive. 
The king of Jerusalem realizes that destruction is inevitable, but he's not just being forced and pressured with the military. He's being pressured from God. Verse 2, God told Jeremiah to go speak to this king, Zedekiah, within the walls of Jerusalem. Tell him from God, I will be giving your city into Nebuchadnezzar's hands and he's going to burn it. Tell him that. Another warning, see. Verse 3, tell the king of Judah he will not escape, but will be burned. I'm sorry, will not be burned. He will be captured and taken away. Then King Zedekiah will be brought to the king of Babylon and will see him eye to eye and face to face. We'll talk more about that later. Face to face with Nebuchadnezzar is not a place that you want to be. After that, the king of Judah will be brought away into captivity, we're told. In verses 4 and 5, there's a way out. If the king were to repent now, if the king were to listen now to the word of God, which has been repeated for a long time, decades by Jeremiah, if the king were to now finally decide today is the day of repentance, he could still have mercy. He could still have a good ending. The king would not die by the sword. If he repented now, instead of dying in a time of war, he could die in a time of peace, and people will grieve him like they ordinarily grieve a king. People will lament him like they usually lament the loss of a king. They will burn spices at an ancient funeral, as they usually do for royalty, such as a king. Basically, God is threatening the king and reasoning with the king and saying, what kind of legacy do you want? How is it going to end for you, O king? That's why he could say uh, in in our verses, at the beginning of verse 4, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Even now, hear it, hear it. He's pleading with him. Verses 6 and 7, Jeremiah told the king this message from God. We again get the repeated use of the word all. If you look at verse 6, all these words. If you look at verse 7, all the cities of Judah. It's a reminder of what we saw earlier. The severe threat and pressure that Babylon's army was putting on King Zedekiah. He's under assault, certainly, from the enemy army, but he's also under assault by the word of the Lord. The destruction was inescapable, unless the king would turn towards God and repent. Verse 8, the Lord commanded King Zedekiah to release all the slaves to be free, and the king did it. Isn't that an indication of repentance? Verse 9, the king ordered that there should be no more slaves of any kind. Verse 10, everyone obeyed and all the slaves were freed. Isn't that a sign of repentance of King Zedekiah? Isn't it possible now that he would not die a death in war, that he would die a death of peace, that he would have the honors of burial, that he would have the honors of a king one day? That would, he, that would be his legacy. Isn't it possible God had given enough warnings that the king now decided to obey, it seems like, right? Doing the right thing, freeing the slaves. Um, If you look real quick right now, King Zedekiah seems to reflect Christ, our king. Setting slaves free. Look quick. Doesn't last long. We move to our second point. The enemy withdrew. As we were told in verse 21, the army of the king of Babylon has, has withdrawn from you. We know historically the reason why, that an army from Egypt was coming, so the army of Babylon was temporarily distracted and had to take care of that. So they withdrew their attack from Jerusalem ever so briefly, and they were coming back. But during that time the enemy withdrew, we get this in verse 11, that King Zedekiah and his officials, I quote, turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free, brought them into subjection as slaves. 
The king now adds a sin to his repertoire. The sin is called the sin of unreliability. You said you were going to free the slaves. Now you're taking the slaves back. That's unreliable. That's unreliability. The king did not follow through on his commitment to do the right thing. He reneged on a covenantal agreement. What a terrible situation for the poor slaves. Can you imagine saying that you're free? Shed your tears. Away you go. Soon thereafter, brought back in. And the sin of the king had damage on all those many people. And it brings us to God's response in point three. We're on point three. God punished the king for unreliability and mistreating others. God responded to the king's unreliability by making a comparison between God's reliability and the results for the people and this king's unreliability and the results for the people. See, both God and King Zedekiah had made proclamations about slaves being set free. God conducted here a side-by-side comparison of the actions of King Zedekiah, like verse 8, to make a proclamation of liberty, excuse me, and the action side-by-side with that of God himself, in verse 13, to bring his people out of the house of slavery, language familiar to us from the Ten Commandments that God showed his own covenant faithfulness upon which God did not renege, contrasted with King Nebuchadnezzar's covenant upon which he did renege. It's so clear in the passage. God is saying, my faithfulness versus your unfaithfulness, Zedekiah. The parallel is continued as we move through the next verses. In verse 14, God quoted his own word back in Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 11. He quotes from that to say that slaves must be set free after six years of service. So it was a temporary arrangement for economic purposes. It was not to own a person. And God is saying that must be upheld every sixth year, release the people from the debts and everything. Verse 14, and God reminded them that their ancestors, quote, did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. End quote. Does that ever sound familiar? And that is, just like the current king, also the ancestors did not heed the covenant provisions of canceling debts on fellow covenant members, setting slaves free. So God pulled it all together for the king and spelled it out in verses 15 and 16. I'll read this. You recently, this is God speaking to the king, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty. I'm skipping a few words here. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. So we see four areas of comparison between God and King Zedekiah. Number one, both had made a covenant. Number two, God kept his covenant. This king broke his. Number three, all of Judah became unreliable because they all turned toward God, but then turned away from God, as he spells out in these verses. And then the fourth comparison is God's name is used doubly here. First, when they turned toward God and actually made the covenant inside of the temple, which makes it worse that they broke it, calling it by his name and doing it inside of his temple. But then the second time that his name is used is when the people turned away from God, and in doing that, they profaned his name. You see how it connects to the third commandment we were reading earlier that we're studying today? Profaning his name is tied to what they're doing in reneging the covenant. So verse 17 follows with a very big and ominous therefore. (laughs) Therefore. What's the verdict going to be from God? 
because the people had broken the covenant, or we could say in terms of the title of the message today, committed the sin of unreliability, what will be the result? Instead of a covenant of life, we could say they basically are receiving a covenant of death. Verses 17 to 22, God gives a sweeping and harsh sentence. It was a pronouncement of an awful judgment from God, which matches the great offense committed against the Lord God. It starts with a play on the word liberty. Basically, if they won't free the slaves, they're free to die. But I'll express it in the language of the passage. Since they would not proclaim liberty, then their punishment is that God would proclaim to them liberty to the sword. You see it in verse 17? Liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. Yeah, you're free to die by the sword, or pestilence, or famine. I'll set you free to do that, because you wouldn't set the people free. This is uh, perhaps one of the most cheeky uh, comebacks in the book of Jeremiah. And they wouldn't keep the covenant promises that God releases the devastation of covenant curses. Verse 17, there will be a horror to all the kings of the earth. Verse 18, God will make them like the two halves of the calf that they cut in two and pass between the parts. Now what's that all about? It's a reference to the ancient covenant establishing process, such as we find Abraham in Genesis 15 is maybe the most familiar to you. Today, you know, we print a legal contract, sign the paper copy, and probably have two witnesses sign with us, depending on how important the document is. But in the ancient world, they would take an animal and literally cut the cow-calf in half, put part on the left and part on the right, and all the parties of the covenant would walk between the halves. Why in the world would they do that? What they're saying to each other, what they're saying to all the watching world is, if I break this covenant with you, do to me what you did to the calf. Cut me in two and split me apart. Not just kill me, but do it violently and all the way, because that demonstrates my commitment to you and to this covenant. I know it's gruesome. I know it's ancient. But I wanted you to understand what he's referring to when he says walk between the halves of the calf. It's a demonstration of reliability, demonstration of commitment to keep our word on this. They broke the covenant, so they're free to be cut in half. That's what he's saying. Verse 19, all the leaders were expected to fulfill their covenant or lose their lives. Verse 20, God will give them into the hands of their enemies, even their bodies. Again, gruesome. uh, Spoiler alert. Their bodies will be food for the vulture types. Vulture types of birds, uh, the kind of animals as well. And And that is especially offensive to the ancient mind because they wanted to have respectful burial. For their body to be exposed after they die is extremely offensive to them and slightly so to us. How can that be since the enemy had withdrawn from attacking Jerusalem? I thought the threat was off. They went to take care of Egypt. Well, God gives his answer in verse 22 that he will command the enemy that's under his command, isn't it? He will command the enemy to come back and attack Jerusalem and then it'll be over. So the the first step toward death is having slavery. And if you think back, what God is saying here in his review of what happened to the Exodus, his first step of redemption is to free people from slavery. This king's first step is to put people in slavery. God's first redemption is to take people out of slavery. And a failure to obey God on this matter placed the king in danger, the city in danger, the villages, the temple, and all the people in danger. That's how seriously God takes this. Now, how does our study point us towards Christ and his cross? At first, King Zedekiah did the right thing by releasing slaves, but then he took the slaves back again. 
Is that the condition of your redemption? You've been set free from sin, but any moment now, you could be drawn back into sin and be a slave to it again? Is that the condition of our redemption? You see the importance of the chapter? It shows the sin of unreliability and that our only hope is that God has sent us a reliable king, our reliable redeemer, that when he sets us free from sin, we remain free from sin. He took our punishment on the cross and set us free indeed. We were dead in sins. He saved us in order to enable us to obey God from our hearts. As Paul says in Romans 6, starting with verse 17, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 17 to 18. So Jesus, our good king, will never let us return to slavery, to sin. Let me go a bit farther with our three applications of Christ from the chapter. Number one, repent of your sin of unreliability. We could call it double-mindedness, so we're all guilty of this. Sometimes we want to do the right thing, sometimes we do not. And instead of trusting in ourselves And having a flip-flop, we need to trust in Christ to give us hearts that are singularly devoted to loving Christ and saying no to our own ungodliness. No longer wavering to and fro. We need grace for that, and grace is what we have. Listen to Paul describe the blessings of the covenant of grace in Titus 2, 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, listen, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, 11 to 14. In our repenting of the sin of unreliability, we remember that it is Christ who redeemed us from our sins of fickle and untrustworthiness and unreliability. Christ has taken our covenant curses upon himself on that cross for our wrongs. Christ has risen again, conquering all of it. He has purified us for his own possession, and he's given us hearts that are zealous for good works. So repentance and faith regarding the sin of unreliability. Second application, follow through on what you say you're going to do. I mean, the, the fruit of repentance looks like changing and doing what we said we're going to do, becoming reliable. Repenting of the sin of unreliability means cutting it out of our lives and changing to faithfulness in that area. Again, the third commandment. It's about not taking the Lord's name in vain in the way that we violate our own word, our own oaths, our own vows when we break them. We're tarnishing the name of the Lord. Basically, Christ enables us to become people of our word. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 33 to 37 not to take oaths at all, but rather to let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Matthew 5, 37. God matures us into people who can follow through. A quick story, a wealthy oil tycoon lay on his deathbed. His pastor talked about God's healing power. Pastor, he gasped, If God heals me, I'll give the church a million (laughs) dollars. Surprisingly, the man revived. And in a few short weeks, actually, he was out of the hospital. 
One day, several months later, he and the pastor found each other in front of the hardware store and started to chat, and the pastor said, "Uh, you know, uh, when you were in the hospital dying, you promised to give the church a million dollars if you got well. We haven't received that yet. And uh, the tycoon answered, did I say that? I guess it goes to show just how sick I really was. Wanting to excuse himself from his prior words is an indication of sin. As God's people, we are careful in what we say, knowing this, and then we do what we say, we do what we agreed to do, we do what God commands us to do, we do what God calls us to do, we follow through on all of our expectations. We become reliable, we become faithful in our tasks before God. We become consistent in Christ. Here's the math of the New Covenant as Paul wrote it, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Or as he says in Galatians 6, 8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So following through, becoming people of our word. And the last, the third application, the last one, rest in Christ's reliability. In Christ, we've been set free from our slavery to sin. Christ will never renege on your freedom. You're free in Christ and you will be forever. We're saved. We're safe. We remember the Apostle Peter. He messed up by denying Christ, had a fickle heart. He said he would never deny Christ. And then he denied Christ three times before the rooster code. Now fast forward to the end of the story of Peter. He repented of his sin of unreliability. He believed in the Savior who redeemed him from lawlessness. He became the faithful Peter. But his faithfulness didn't bring honor to him. His faithfulness brought honor to Christ. When you look at Acts chapter 2, we see that Peter had one of the highest privileges in all of redemptive history. He got to give the sermon on the day when the Holy Spirit was given to the church giving out the gospel of grace, exalting Christ, and explaining the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't bringing honor to Peter. It was bringing honor to Christ. And later Peter got to write two letters of the New Testament to Christians in New Testament exile, First and Second Peter. And what would Peter write to the Christians going through a hard time? He would write about being faithful in exile. Let me read what he wrote in First Peter 1 verse 7, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are in the same kind of situation, New Testament exile as those who received Peter's letters away from our new Jerusalem home in heaven. And while here we're going through trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of our faith may result in honor to Jesus Christ. Another quick story here. Ignatius Jan Paderowski, the famous Polish composer pianist, was once scheduled to perform a great American concert hall for high society extravaganza. In the audience was a mother with her fidgety nine-year-old son, Weary of waiting, the boy slipped away from his mother, uh, kind of got down to the Steinway piano on the stage somehow, without much notice from a security guard apparently, or the audience, sat down at the stool and began to play, and the only thing he knew was chopsticks. 
And so the roar of the crowd turned to shouts as hundreds of people were yelling, get that boy away from that piano. When Paderowski heard the commotion out there, he came from behind an upper uh, uh, stage. He grabbed his coat, rushed over to the boy, reaching on round from behind the boy, he started to play an improvised counter melody around his chopsticks. As the two of them played together, the crowd became quiet and Paderowski kept whispering in the boy's ear, keep going, don't quit son, don't stop now, keep going, don't stop. I tell that story because it's an illustration of our third application point. We are resting in Christ's reliability to bless us. Our little efforts, our feeble things, he reaches from around and turns it into a thing of beauty. We rest in Christ's covenant reliability. We look at the main point of this, this message. Compared to God's reliability, we notice our sin of unreliability, but you could reverse it and say it backwards. Compared to our sin of unreliability, we notice Christ's reliability. Or say it in the Jeremiah language, no matter how much we break the covenant, God keeps the covenant. Or we could read it once more in New Testament poetic language from 2 Timothy 2.11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray.